Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. Good evening. I'm Jay Brown, the executive assistant and a member of the Alaska Black Caucus, serving on the Health Committee, an organization that champions the lives of Black people in the areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Thank you for joining us for tonight's COVID-19 community conversation. What is the new normal and how do we move forward in health and safety? Please remember that this conversation is being recorded for rebroadcast. So please keep yourselves on mute. If you have questions, use the chat and we'll try our best to get to them all. Please welcome tonight's moderator, Deanne Woodard, who will introduce our guest presenter and panelist. Thank you. Good evening and welcome everyone. My name is Deanne Woodard, and I am the program coordinator uh, for program manager for the COVID-19 grant, which is um, a part of the work that Alaska Black Caucus is doing around health equity. Um, tonight, we have with us Dr. Deborah Amrani. She is a native of Chicago. She attended the Chicago Public Schools and graduated from Kenwood High School. She earned a doctorate from the University of Illinois at Chicago. At UIC, she served as the director of the Urban Health Program's P20 Pipeline STEM initiatives to ensure the preparation of students from preschool through the completion of a doctorate degree in STEM disciplines. She designed, implemented, and evaluated programs along with writing grants. The American Academic for Medical Colleges considered the UHP to be the most comprehensive pipeline program in the USA. Dr. Morani also served as adjunct faculty at UIC in the departments of African-American studies and English. She retired from UIC's College of Education as an adjunct assistant professor. Her greatest desire is to open a STEM academy to prepare students academically, socially, and ethically to become change agents in their homes, schools, communities, and the world. Also joining us tonight is Margot Bellamy. She was born and raised in Miami, Florida, where she met her husband, Howard, during the heights of the civil rights movement in the late 1960s. With a passion for civil rights and social justice, Margot earned her bachelor's degree in 1972, followed by a master's degree from the State University of New York at Albany in 1973 and a master's degree from UAA in 1986. Margot moved to Alaska and married Howard, a retired veteran. Margot began working in the Anchorage School District in 1974 and never looked back. She continues her love for education with doctoral work at APU and USC between 1978 and 80. Margot is an experienced educator, central office administrator, school leader, public servant, social justice champion, and an advocate for youth and families. At this time, I'll turn it over to Dr. Imrani. Uh, I want to thank you for this opportunity and also welcome you to the event. I'm going to pull up my screen. First and foremost, um, again, welcome you to the Alaska Black Caucus um, COVID-19 Community Conversation. Uh, great day to all of you. Uh, as you know, uh, my name is Dr. Deborah Ronnie. In addition to welcoming you, I want to thank the Alaska Black Caucus and their community engagement team for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to speak with you and engage you in a conversation about the threat has been, that has been looming over us for the past two years because of COVID-19. Thank you for attending. What is the new normal? That's one of the questions that we're gonna be looking at today. How do we move safely forward in health and safety and some of the 
lessons learned? What are the results of what we've learned in this situation? We're going to talk about optimal health as of right. Uh, we've had a lot of questions about COVID-19, and in response, we've received information, misinformation, disinformation, distortions, and out-and-out lies. And in some instances, we've earned and received the, the truth. The difference between misinformation is just stuff that isn't correct, and we find out later is not correct. And disinformation is when someone intentionally provides the, the incorrect information. Um, many people during the COVID-19 event at the boxing ring of human existence and COVID-19 just flattened humanity with a one-two punch. Everyone who entered the ring was left with an indicator that they had been involved in a fight and for some that they bore the scars that it did not end well for them. Um, some have long COVID and others actually even had limbs amputated. Daily conflicting information came out causing mass confusion and toilet paper shortages price gouging for cleaning products, and bottled water. <clears throat> Daily conflicting information came out causing mass confusion and um, empty shore shelves and knockout dragout fights in grocery stores. Manufacturers and the media offered a grim view of a dystopian future. People were afraid of people and felt like the unluckiest people in the world. The death toll mounted. And yet, some of us are still here. According to Mildred Hunter, an individual who still works in the field of national, on the national level advocating for minority health, she said that COVID-19 amplified all of the issues and concerns that we have been working on in the field, those who have been working on in the field for decades. Now everyone is surprised that these issues exist. Those of us who have been engaged in this initiative for a while have known the implications of the neglect that has already transpired. As we rise as a phoenix from the dust and ashes of uncertainty, there is a determination to chart a path forward. To do this, we need to look at the indicators. Is it doom and gloom, or can we begin to see our work clear? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? My background, as she indicated, is in uh, higher education. I spent over 20 years doing that, preparing the next generation of healthcare providers. Uh, we started in preschool and worked with kids all the way and young adults all the way through the completion of a degree in medical school or the degree of their choice. This is a longitudinal effort and you don't see the results overnight. As a matter of fact, you don't see the results even in 10 years. But if you wait and are willing to invest the time, effort and resources, human material and monetary, you will see a marvelous Outcome. The impact of the harvest will reverberate around the world for generations. It will not just change one life, but it will change generations and countless few in the lives of countless human beings. It will be an effort that we can be proud of. And I just to mention on the side, there's a young man now. We started working with him when he was in kindergarten. And one of his greatest <laughs> dilemmas was learning the scientific method. Right now, he is at John Hopkins University in his third year of medical school. So the, it's been a long journey, but he is there. He is bright, and he is about to make a big difference in our world. Uh, what did COVID-19 teach us? COVID-19 taught us that we did not have enough resources, both human, appropriately trained staff, nor materials, PPE, medicines, or hospital beds, et cetera. 
we were not prepared and people suffered. COVID taught us that people with pre-existing conditions and chronic illnesses, the, the infirm, the underprivileged, the poor, the homeless, those in nursing homes and extended care facilities, and even in jails and prisons will suffer the most when pandemics hit. COVID taught us that our healthcare workers and first responders are the most dedicated human beings on the planet Earth. They were overworked physically and emotionally drained. Some suffered mental breakdowns. COVID taught us that if we don't protect them, they will suffer and they will die. This kind of loss is tragic on so many levels, tragic for their families, tragic for the communities in which they served. And we know that the universe has lost a great soul. COVID taught us that innocent people unnecessarily die. It taught us that we need to change how we respond. To prep for this um, event, I spoke with three people that I think you should know. Uh, Dr. Um, uh, Pendleton, who is the head of the Urban Health Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Linda Mary Gray Murray, she's an MD, clinical practitioner, and also a master, she has a master's in public health. And Mildred Hunter, who, as I mentioned before, worked on the national scene at the Department of Health and Human Services. I spoke with all of them to get their perspective on what happened, what went well, and what we need to know to do now, the equivalent of a hot wash. How do we ensure that we're not caught with our pants down when the next tragedy hits? And how do we improve the day-to-day -day of that, of how we respond to healthcare matters? Dr. Daryl Pendleton, as I mentioned before, is the executive director of the Urban Health Program. He um, is a, uh, a dentist. And he works with um, preparing dentists and also as the executive director of the Urban Health Program with all of the health science colleges at UIC, medicine, pharmacy, dentistry, applied health sciences, nursing, uh, and the School of Public Health, and also the graduate college that prepares individuals for degrees, doctoral degrees, and the hard scientists. He is a phenomenal leader in that regard. Uh, Dr. Linda Ray Murray. She is a medical doctor, a Ph, and she's also a fellow. She uh, describes herself as she's de dedicated herself to being uh, an enthusiastic, full-time troublemaker. In other words, if there are issues about uh, improving the number of individuals who are going into careers in the health sciences who are underrepresented, underserved, she is there to advocate for them and to ensure that they get where they're going. I don't have a photo of um, Dr. Mildred Hunter, but she is also someone who is a troublemaker and she works in an area where they provide um, funding for individuals in any level of the health care professions. And she also um, provides scholarships, ways to pay off loans, and all sorts of opportunities for individuals who are in the health professions. So they are all individuals who have opinions about what happened. Dr. Murray described the way that we handled the pandemic uh, that was caused by COVID-19 as the equivalent of a major city like Anchorage or Chicago, New York, um, San Francisco, Boston, their fire departments being faced with a five alarm fire and deciding to hire firefighters on the spot. And she said, of course, in other words, we did not have trained medical staff, nor the systems in place, nor the supplies needed to fight this thing and win. 
to frame the conversation, um, I want to uh, use the words of a woman who is a, I call her a kingmaker. She owns her own uh, television network. She also um, owns um, her own um, magazine, and she's the best talk show host ever. I'm not sure you guys know who I'm talking about, Oprah Winfrey. Every issue of her magazine, she asks the question, what do we know for sure? Uh, what do we know for sure? We know that people with COVID-19, that people became sick and some of them died. Others bear the scars of their battle and their disease with long COVID. We know that the, weak, the weaknesses in the system showed up in a bold and brazen way. At the beginning of the pandemic, 40% of the people who died lived in communal living arrangements like nursing homes and the like. It looked like the lives of some folks were indispensable. We heard horror stories about um, in senior citizens' homes where they were just stacking the bodies in closets and conference rooms and everything because they didn't know what to do. We know for sure that people are tired of wearing masks, tired of being separated from families and their families and friends, and people want to get back to the new normal. This is what we also know, that we have to be prepared. We have to be locked and loaded and appropriately with appropriately trained staff, materials, and adequate resources to ensure that we need to meet, meet the challenges fully equipped, not just to survive, but to thrive and win. I'm suggesting that we look at the post-COVID world and ask what the, is the new normal. The new normal must be steps beyond washing our hands and wearing masks and getting vaccinated and boosted. It's not just joining a group of maskless marauders going to places that we haven't been in the world in the last two years. Based on my conversation with the three experts, there's a necessity to use the bigger picture that the pandemic highlighted as the way to move forward. We have to look at the systemic solutions to the challenges that arose during the pandemic and make challenge changes on those levels to see lasting change. In this way, we will reap the benefits of what we call the best practices and things that we need to see to make long-term, to see long-term positive outcomes. We often hear the term health equity talked about as a solution. When we think of health equity, we think it means the same, the same health care for everyone. But this isn't the full picture of what we really need. People who live in Alaska have diverse health care needs from individuals who live in Chicago or places like Flint, Michigan. Remember Flint, Michigan? Health is not a cookie cutter enterprise. Health care should be individualized in a collective way uh, to ensure the health care solutions offered to each patient and community represent holistic, thoughtful, and purposeful health care that yields the ways and means to obtaining and maintaining optimal health because it is a result. In a utopian universe in the USA, which I call three to the third power, uh, health equity would be striving for optimal health for all. The CDC often uses the um, statement that health equity and their, their health equity statement reads as follows. Health equity is achieving is achieved when every person has the opportunity to attain his or her full health potential and no one is disadvantaged from achieving this potential because of social position or social determined circumstances. Health equity is reflected in differences in length of life, quality of life, rates of disease, disability, and death, 
severity of disease and access to treatment. One of the primary goals of the CDC, the National Center for Disease, Chronic Disease Prevention and Health, is to achieve health equity by eliminating health, eliminating health disparities and achieving optimal health for all Americans. They address the health equity through their its programs, their research tools, resources, and leadership. They provide, as I said, under the part of the leadership of Dr. Mildred Hunter, the um, scholarships for students in health science colleges in all dis disciplines, loan repayment, and we know that is really a challenge. Um, to accomplish optimal health, it means increasing the number of public health practitioners. These individuals are scientists who look at health and disease. They look at trends and outcomes for specific communities. They gather meaningful statistics that are disaggregated by an individual's personal, racial, and ethnic makeup to ensure that the data correctly reflects the specific issues of that community. As all three experts indicated, we tend to lump people into groups of Black, White, Hispanic, Asian, Native, when Blacks some of us, some of come from Africa or the Caribbean. Hispanics um, come from Mexico, South America, Central America. There are Asians who are from the continent, you know, from the country of India. They're from, from Pakistan, China, the Philippines. And Pacific Islanders cannot be there, either be Samoan or Hawaiian. They could be from all these different places, but we tend to lump them together. There are also natives who are Navajo, Pueblo, or Yakima from different tribes. Accurately identifying the ethnic heritage of individuals can help pinpoint certain conditions, diseases, et cetera, within specific groups and help with the development of strategies to get to a state of optimal health for all. All three experts pointed out a public health degree is more appreciated now than ever um, because there's a need to operationalize well-trained health uh, public health practitioners because their training is holistic. It can be adapted globally. Um, they track good, they track um, data in good and meaningful ways. They keep track of health. They know what, they keep track of what makes people sick. And they recognize that health is affected in many different ways. Dr. Murray pointed out that at the beginning of the pandemic, the public health workforce was down by 250,000 workers. That's one quarter of a million people missing in action in the action of identifying, tracking, tracing, strategizing, and finding global um, solutions for the global pandemic. The pandemic opened the door of opportunity for more public health workers, yet we have to be sure that those who enter those positions are adequately prepared. We have to the we have often looked at uh, healthcare practitioners through the hierarchical lens that, and I've been guilty of this. Um, my own hierarchy, hierarchy dealt with MD, PhDs at the top, and surgeons, MD, pharmacists, et cetera, nurses. But I found out a thing about um, how important every individual in the healthcare arena is. I was doing training for a group of young people um, in the various health professions, and I met a young woman who had graduated from Harvard uh, with her uh, bachelor's and master's, and she came to the University of Illinois to earn her PhD in occupational therapy. And I was like, wow, this girl is so smart. Why isn't she, a, you know, going to be a medical doctor? And she told this story. She said that um, she had a man come to her who had been in a car accident and he became a quadriplegic because of the accident. 
And she said he was broken, not only in his body, but in his spirit and his soul and his emotions. He came to her. She said she was able to work with him. When the surgeon finished the surgery, the surgeon was gone. The medical doctor came in, did what they had to do. But she said she was able to work with this person over a period of time and help this individual move to optimal health. They help him heal physically, emotionally, psychologically. And she said none of the other professionals would have been able to do that. And that was why she chose to be an occupational therapist. And it was very meaningful to me that every position in the healthcare care industry, every individual, whatever they do, they have the temperament for it and they should be respected. Um, healthcare practitioners have been looking at the benefits of the team approach on which healthcare practitioners lay down their hierarchical hats and place the patient at the center of the enterprise and recognize and respect the contribution of each practitioner in their role in increasing favorable outcomes in patient care. Doctors, surgeons, nurses, and therapists respectfully work together to achieve this goal. Dr. Pillman and I talked about one industry where they do this, and this is in cancer treatment. And when a patient comes in uh, for cancer, they have a team of experts made up of um, a doctor, surgeon. Um, there will be a, a, a physician's assistant, a, a, um, a nurse, a pharmacist, nutritionist, a therapist. It could be physical, occupational, and also psychological to help deal with their mental health, depending on what that patient's needs are. One thing he indicated is that this model is costly and it is not effective over a large healthcare uh, population. Dr. Murray's, Dr. Drs. Murray and Pendleton both agree that the community healthcare center model is the best approach to effectually to effectuate optimal health in communities. Dr. Murray pointed out that Alaska had already used this model in many uh, of their um, clinics controlled by the sovereign native nations. It's a model of participation, control, and empowerment that yields good clinical care. Dr. Pendleton noted that in Chicago, the community health care centers are places where all the staff know the names of the patients as they come in. From the receptionist to the health care, the primary care team, the individual is welcomed and they see providers that look like them and understand their cultural challenges and needs. Murray indicated that beyond the physician, Beyond the phlebotomists, beyond the nurses, the technicians, the social workers, and using a collaborative approach in healthcare, there also needs to be a public health worker who keep tabs on what's going on in the community. Things like increases in gang violence, things like um, spikes in the measles, grocery stores closing, schools closing, even things like renovations and demolitions. She made a point of a community in Chicago where there had been this unsightly factory that had a smokestack and they went in, the, the team went in to dis, to destroy it and they blew up the smokestack. What that did was it released years of smoke and soot into the air, which impacted the individuals with breathing problems in that community. If there had been a public health, um, a community public health, a public community health care center in that area, the public health worker would have worked with the people, would have known that they were planning to do that and warn them of what would happen if you just explode a smokestack in the middle of a community. And they would have done something else to remove the eyesore. Um, Dr. Murray also pointed out that looking at health care through the lens of optimal health 
challenges us to take off the blinders of the narrow view of health care that we currently possess. Effective primary care is more than going to a good doctor. We have to view it as from a broader landscape, a holistic, holistic approach that captures the essence of what it means to be healthy. The saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is not an empty euphemism. The CDC indicated there, there are social determinants of health, things like clean water. Uh, remember Flint, Michigan, right? Um, sewage, uh, sanitation, um, food deserts, uh, clean drinking water. Um, right now, in many communities, there are dollar stores where people are going to purchase their food, and that is not a good solution for uh, optimal health. She also pointed out that we have to have an excellent K-12 educational system, community safety, safe jobs, and a decent living wage, concerns about climate change, especially in places like Alaska, health insurance for all. She mentioned a single-payer system. Medical care, should Medicare for all, is a basic human right. Well-trained primary care physicians who work with youth and seniors and to have more underrepresented individuals in the healthcare workforce would greatly improve healthcare outcomes for African-Americans and other underrepresented groups. Canceling student loans and free college for all, she threw that in, would also be an added bonuses. She mentioned that community colleges and state universities and also land-grant institutions of higher education are, can accomplish this because it's in their mission, it's in their mission statement. She also mentioned empowering residents to be informed consumers. This is not socialism, but peopleism and humanism and the product of an institutional commitment to really be there for the people. Hunter made note of that the, um, the way that the, uh, HRSA, um, Department of Health and Human Services has institutionalized their health equity plan, the COVID-19 health equity plan. She encouraged individuals to contact their state legislators to lobby them to approve funding so that federal funds are not available, state fundings can fill in the gap, and that people lobby their city councils to replicate the best practices throughout the state that is essential. Encouraging legislators on all levels to end the digital divide and increase communication between politicians, educators, healthcare providers, and the community will help. We should also teach parents to be the boots on the ground in underserved communities and to build a compelling argument to speak to our political servants about pain, about change. Pendleton, Murray, and Hunter suggested that we begin to rethink the workforce and expand our vision of who a primary care provider can be beyond the, um, the physician, noting that physician assistants and nurse practitioners have great training, training and that also dental hygienists can be used to identify um, oral problems, uh, health problems that require more in-depth treatment. We cannot forget the importance of the role of nurses and other frontline workers in patient care. Good primary care providers help patients to navigate the rest of the medical um, care system. Murray pointed out that at the beginning of the, um, that in the U.S., 70% of physicians are specialists and only 30% are primary care. It's the exact opposite in Europe. And right now, the way it stands, all patients could not have a primary care physician if 70% of them are specialists. Um, 
Dr. Pendleton indicated that there that although these were the worst, the UIC Urban Health Program used the summer of 2020, the summer of COVID and the summer of social unrest as an opportunity to make it the best of times for the recruitment, enrollment, reticulation, retention, and graduation of African American and other underrepresented students in the health at the healthcare colleges at UIC. The deans of the colleges and university leadership supported the intentionality of this effort. Uh, with testing sites for the MCAT and PCAT closed, most of the colleges made the test scores optional. Uh, they also offered great financial pay aid packages uh, to the students that they enrolled. The Urban Health Program played a major role in this effort as it worked with the colleges of medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, nursing, applied health sciences, and public health to operationalize um, the development of a dynamic healthcare workforce composed of well-trained minority healthcare workers on all levels of the healthcare spectrum of service providers. UHP also worked with faculty and staff in the health science colleges uh, to help improve uh, issues for them. They also worked with our U of, U of I hospital to help move individuals from certificate who had certificates and associate degrees into baccalaureate degree programs to enhance their training and capacity to effectively serve on medical teams. They also help students move from being students into positions of employment. The UHP enrollment management plan included looking at solid students who did not have um, lots of offers from uh, big name schools for admissions. Um, Dr. Uh, Murray made this uh, statement. It was it's kind of interesting. She said, she indicated that any intelligent person can be trained to be a skilled doctor, a nurse, or even a carpenter. She said, as opposed to someone being a musician, a visual, or a performing artist, which requires a level of giftedness in addition to the training. She says, right now, our problem is the small pool of qualified students to fill those positions, the shortages as doctors, nurses, and even carpenters. Getting intelligent people into the healthcare science training schools is very M. She suggested that beyond the need for a pipeline program, there's a need to improve the quality of education for all students so that all students have choices. Personally, I've worked with um, schools in the Chicago area, and we have a magnet school program system that cherry picks the brightest and best students and pours resources into those students. They have the best teachers, the best facilities. They have opportunities of all kinds, whereas in our neighborhood schools, parents just have to sort of hope and pray that some learning goes on every day. And it has increased what we call the pipeline to prison because poor education does lead to that. And we need to make sure that there is a commitment to ensure that all schools and all districts have excellent qualified teachers and who are providing using best practices and differentiated instruction to prepare students to be the best, intelligent, ethically grounded person who can make a positive contribution to the world. Murray also pointed out that Xavier University in New Orleans is intentional in their preparation for minority positions. Medical colleges from around the nation seek their students. Um, she said there is one industry that depends on poorly a poorly educated populace to ensure its success, and that is the prison industrial complex. The, she also indicated that they decide how many beds they're going to need 10 years out 
by how many students who cannot read by the time they're in the fifth grade. And that is something that we can all work to improve. A quality education for every American child is a birthright, not a reward for the privileged. And it should be supported by all. We need to explore the idea of exposure in these fields um, for the students. We need to see students as diamonds and that we can harvest them. We can harvest and grow our own in the fields that we have. Um, one of the things that we know is that a kid who says they want to be a doctor when they're five years old or 12 years old may not have that same interest when they are 21 years old. It's time for them to enter a health science college. But if we prepare all students with uh, a quality education, we can ensure that whatever field they go in, that they can be helpful for everyone. Um, with the work that I did with the pipeline uh, programs that we had at UIC, we would bring the students and I said in kindergarten, they would have a robust, rigorous um, math and science curriculum. They would also be trained in, in cultural, um, the cultural arts. They would learn things like character education, medical ethics. They would learn about the different cultures, African, Mexican, Chinese. They would learn things like sign language, you know, and also how to, to read Braille and also, um, you know, financial literacy and around, about careers. In seventh grade, they would begin touring the basic, the various health science colleges so they could get a taste and talk to professionals in all of those fields and learn about what those people do, why students went into that field, why faculty are in those fields, and even practitioners, and be able to make an informed decision about which field they want to go into. The exposure was uh, one of the things we would do is send kids to the uh, gross anatomy lab and that lab, and that was a make or break. There are students who say they will never forget the day that they went to the gross anatomy lab and saw the cadavers. And that's why they decided to go into another field. The thing that we also have to recognize is that every field can have a connection to the health sciences. My daughter is an attorney. Um, she graduated from UC Berkeley and she is a healthcare um, specialist. That is the area that she works in. She, you know, works with, um, industries in that regard. Uh, an, an individual who is an artist can become a medical illustrator. People who love to do dance, they can do dance therapy. There are all court kinds of ways that any field, um, can be, um, helpful in the, um, health professions. Computer, sci computer scientists can do, deal, design robotics labs. So they have surgical robotics labs. And also business people in business can go into hospital administration. Dr. Pendleton also made um, a point that we have to have education on all levels. The training has to be for to help uh, healthcare professionals become informed providers with the latest treatments and protocols and educational training in the health delivery systems. This includes, you know, helping them to respect caregivers. And using the correct language was one thing that Dr. Hunter pointed out, being sure that what one is saying is not demeaning and so that they can build bridges in patient care. Um, Precious Marie Walker, which I know you all know, she actually did a study um, when she was um, in um, studying and they explored the various um, communication styles of physicians. One was uh, authoritarian and the other was a collaborative approach. They found that doctors who use the collaborative approach, which meant that they actually 
talk with the patient about their care, talk with the patient and got them involved, that those are the, the doctors and the patient, the physicians who had the best outcomes for their patients because the patients were willing to comply more fully because they felt that they had a supportive relationship and that the person really was willing to listen to them. Um, Dr. Murray also noted that empowering people in their communities to form and forming uh, important critical alliances with other communities is a great use of resources. There's a need to discuss uh, attitudes about health, develop collaborative treatment plans to increase patients' awareness of supportive relationships with their PCs. Uh, the increase in the number of healthcare providers, Pendleton said, schools of um, health science schools need to be more uh, flexible in how they, um, their admission and in also the curriculum development. He said initially there was resistance to virtual learning, but they found out during the pandemic that this was one of the greatest assets that they had being able to switch to that. Um, there has to be, in, there has to be uh, health literacy for parents and families using terminology um, to achieve a status of informed consumers. People have to know who they're speaking with. They have to trust the individuals and everyone in the uh, hierarchy has to um, be involved in this. Lessons learned. What have we learned from the pandemic? Dr. Murray pointed out something. She said history is a great indicator. The, um, flu, the influenza epidemic of 1918, people learned to keep your hands clean, wear masks, and people isolate. It can be helpful. She also pointed out that the most recent pandemic was the HIV pandemic. She said, when we look at it, um, we learned, um, we've learned a lot and we know what to do, uh, but there are also record increases of HIV in specific communities, especially among African-Americans. She says there are challenges in drug distribution to the neediest patients, and right now there's no vaccine or funding for a cure. Dr. Yes. Uh, forgive me. This is Deanne. I, I'm sorry to cut you off. We are down to about 15 minutes left in our total time. So um, we're I'll, going yeah, to I'll be done in three. All right. Okay. We'll, great. we'll take over there. Yes. Okay. She said history is important. And what do we need to know? Right now, what has been happening is at the height of the, of the COVID, there was a distribution of masks. There was a, in, the child income credit. There were increases in unemployment payments. Right now, Congress has cut off the uh, the, the help for uh, all COVID help. That will impact the distribution of PPE, SNAPs, and also um, the holds on eviction. So a lot of that will begin to stop. What do we need to do? Um, we need to look at how we're doing things, and we need to look at – we need great social services. As mentioned before, you know, wouldn't it be nice if there was a humanistic approach to the educational outcomes for our people? We need to operationalize COVID um, for all people, excellent education for all, a living wage, insurance for all, optimal health. Um, the lessons learned is the benefits of a supportive relationship. We need to prepare now. Affordable access to quality health care can be obtained by community health care centers. Um, and the pandemic highlighted the need for the allocation of effective funding for pipeline programs for youth. Um, thank you. What do we know for sure? We have the power and the resources. 
Uh, we need the commitment to do the most good for the most people. Um, we can do this thing together to ensure a bright future for everyone. Be well, be safe, be blessed. Thank you very much. If there are any questions, I am here to respond. Thank you so much for your. Thank you so much uh, for sharing all of that wonderful information with us. Um, if you don't mind, um, if you will stop share on your screen, thank you so much. And um, we have a few questions. You know, you hit on some of them um, already in your presentation. Mm -hmm. I'd like to, um, one, ask my, um, my colleague to continue to watch the um, chat for any questions that may come from our audience. Um, Margo, I'd like to give you an opportunity also to weigh in on some of the questions that Dr. Armani um, addressed in her presentation. Um, from your perspective, how do you think uh, COVID-19 health equity can be operation operationalized? You have to unmute yourself. Margo, you have to unmute yourself. Oh, okay. I did. I missed that it was a question to me. <laughs> anyway, thank, thank you, Dr. Uh, uh, Amrani. You, you hit on several uh, issues. I mean, for me, uh, as an educator, I, I absolutely believe that uh, the best education possible for all of our kids. Yes. Mm -hmm. A couple of reflections um, for me also had to do with, I mean, one of the things I think our district does quite well is create pathways for students who are interested in everything from health science careers to, um, you know, uh, to, to, to agriculture, uh, architecture, engineering. Uh, we, we are purposefully um, opening up those pathways and creating more of them so that students have the, have that choice. And so uh, those are a couple of things that, Kind of, I didn't really hear the whole question, uh, Sarah Deanne, but uh, um, uh, those were a couple of things that I just that stuck with me as she was talking. You have to unmute yourself too, Deanna. We can't hear you. <laughs> Very good, thank you. Um, no, I, I just asked how COVID nineteen health equity could be operationalized. What your thoughts were on that? Yeah. So the the equity for us, uh, really, a couple of things. Um, for for and I can only speak from the educational perspective, uh, but I do know that from what we we we've had some triumphs and some struggles, like every other school district and every other community. And I think when we look at um, the ways that we collaborate, uh, like with, we collaborated, uh, you know, we were at one point the Anchor School District was giving uh, COVID vaccines to the community. Uh, we didn't do that in isolation. We did that in collaboration and partnership with other uh, agencies. Um, you know, when we look at the the things we're trying to to um, in preparing our kids to have successful uh, academic and uh, careers, life careers, we've made changes to our policies and we've made changes to uh, just how we generally do business. And so you know, feeding all kids regard, you know, one of the things we had to do is look at the nutrition for kids. Uh, they, it's not enough for them to have access to a device if they have no connectivity for that device. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, what, that's one of the things COVID caused us to do is to be more, uh, students, uh, uh, focused in terms of looking at what they need, not what their parents can provide in every case. 
because I, I, there, there, there is no one size fit all. And I think Dr. Amrani uh, talked about that in her, 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 her uh, uh, presentation as well. Wonderful. Thank you. We did have a question come in the chat. Um, they're asking, um, Margo, if you can share some things um, which you have that ASD learned from COVID and you shared some of that, but in particular, um, what, um, what ways can we support children's mental health and family well-being? And, and that's a great question. Uh, that is going to take um, a lot of resources. It's going to take a lot of professional resources. We need more nurses. One of the, that is an outcome that that whole uh, mental health and uh, the whole the whole the whole treating the whole child. I mean, we want them to be um, excellent learners, but in order for them to be excellent learners, they they've got to we've got to be be aware of what they need as individuals, and it's not things that you can always see on the outside. So one of the, the learnings from COVID is the mental, that mental health piece. We were actually having kids do just the opposite of what we really want them to do during COVID. We had them isolate. We don't really want kids to isolate, but they had, they, they had to isolate because we felt given the information we knew had at the time that that was the safest thing to do. We, we told them they didn't have to come to school for a period of time. They didn't have to show up. So now we've got to undo all of that. And and make sure that attendance is important, and and and, and parents help and, and engage parents to help us with that. Um, and we don't want kids to isolate because they grow from the social interactions that they have uh, with each other in schools. So some of the, the we we've learned a lot from COVID. Uh, some of the things that you know, uh, um, virtual learning was not uh, was great for some families. Every kid did not fail or, or struggle during COVID. A lot of kids did quite well because we did things differently that fit their, their learning style and their, uh, what, what they needed, which is that whole idea of equity. It is not giving everybody the same thing. It's giving people what they need, um, the way they need it for themselves, not for everybody else. So we, I expect that we will, I know that we, we, some of the struggles that we will have is the, the learning loss, uh, due to kids not having, uh, sustained learning during, uh, the times that schools were closed. And the other would be that whole mental health and wellness piece. Uh, and, and we have plans to, to work on that. Wonderful. That, go ahead, Dr. Right. right. I'd also like to add the other thing is removing the stigma of mental health issues. Absolutely. That's the other thing. Kids have to be comfortable. I think one of the things when you have someone like Simone Biles say, look, I was struggling, okay? Yeah. So when people come forward and say they've had issues, that takes away the stigma so that kids can talk about things and they they help. Because if they hold it in, like you said, the isolation is a problem. But when they feel that that means that somehow they're defective as a human being, that also uh, heightens the the challenge of dealing with that. And and we have to work with our parent groups as well, because when we were trying to figure out how we were going to address the mental health issues, there are parents that 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 term does not work for for, for parents. Right. And and it's because it carries carries that historical negativity of, 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 um, that, that really triggers parents. So mm-hmm. you are absolutely right. What we call it and what we do 
mm-hmm. um, is going to be very, very important in how successful we are going to be. Yeah, I agree. That's actually a really great segue into the next question. Um, will there be a comprehensive mental health needs assessment? And if so, who will be tasked with gathering the data? School nurses, school psychiatrists, boots on the ground, teachers. Um, how will that play out? So what, what I can tell you, for we have just, uh, we are in the process of redesigning uh, our whole mental health support, SEL, whatever, wellness program. We've had little bits and pieces of things in different places, and some people were doing some things and some people were doing other things. We are now putting it all, we're, we're trying to connect all the dots, mm-hmm. uh, connect all the partners and the resources um, so that we can have a more comprehensive plan. We have partners right now. We have the Volunteers of America. We have um, Providence. We have, we have lots of partners doing lots of different things. What we believe as a board we need to do and are doing is to uh, really build, rebuild a comprehensive plan that would include not just the mental health supports, but the SEL supports, the restorative justice uh, pieces, uh, making sure that we're, we're, we're creating a program. So who's going to keep that data? I think the senior director who is in charge of uh, of that will will be working with our partners and with our staff uh, to 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 gather and and uh, uh, brief the board on the data, and also making everyone responsible for the children. We're all caregivers, mm-hmm. and if you see something, as they say, if you see something, say something. Say something. Yeah. You know, letting the parents know and letting the educators know, letting everyone in the school. I mean. Even a janitor may see a kid doing something strange Mm -hmm. and just report it to someone so that someone can begin asking questions. Because what's happening in families, especially in areas where we have increased violence and everything, kids don't know how to react, you know, and just Mm -hmm. having someone who comes in and notices and in a kind way, you know, starts a conversation with that child can make all the difference in the world. Absolutely. And that was a void during COVID because we didn't have those watchful eyes. Yes. Uh, we didn't have, we didn't have the adults. And I agree. And in our district, I do believe that we have, um, that we have, we have, that adults know, you know, that, that, that in every one of our schools, we have adults who kids feel real comfortable going to and talking to. Yes. Now, that is not going to work for every single kid, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got to have lots of ways for people to give us mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Very good. Um, another question. How will the COVID-19 mental health funding be allocated? Title I schools, secondary schools, et cetera. How? So. Is there funding? I'm not quite sure. I, the funding that we got, the funding is allocated um, I mean, we ha- I, I don't have that paperwork here with me, but we have, we are accountable to the state. We're accountable to the muni. I mean, we have so many, um, so it's not just going to Title I schools because our, our kids are struggling in every one of our schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do understand that the, the Title I, the, the, the needs in a Title I school might be different, which is why Title I schools already get an extra uh, pool of money aside from anything, any other allocation. So, uh, and, and that money is spent 
uh, based on the principle, the, the, the community, what that community feels it needs. And so it, it will be spent in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is district uh, allocation of staffing and funds and that every school will get. If you are a Title I school, you get extra funds. And that money, uh, the amount of is not determined by us. It's determined by others. And uh, it's spent by that school community. Okay. Thank you. And one thing to well, advocate, uh, oh, sure. no, yeah. this would be a time for parents and educational leaders to advocate for additional funding for those particular things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. We have one minute for one last question. So each of you gets 30 seconds to try to answer this one before I turn it over um, to Jay. Um, how did the lack of preparation for COVID force you to be creative in your respective duties and accomplish your institutional goals? How did the lack of preparation for COVID force you to be creative in your respective duties and accomplish your institutional goals? That comes from our chat. The question. Wow. From our chat. Oh. Well, okay. I'll try. I'll take a stab at it. I mean, <laughs> uh, at that time, I'd only been on the board for when COVID uh, hit. I think I was on the board six months. Um, so I, I, what everything I had planned, I thought I had planned went out the door because keeping our kids safe and keeping our staff safe became a priority in a time when we didn't know what we were facing. And so, uh, so I would say the impact for me would have been, uh, all those lofty goals I thought I needed, I, that I had campaigned on just six months earlier. Uh, I realized very quickly that they were not, that is not what our district needed nor our, what our kids needed. So I pivoted like everybody else. I pivoted. I focused on kids. Um, and I, and I continue to do that to this day. Not, not that I would not have done it if there was no COVID. I just would have thrown in a little bit more. You know, I would have probably been a little bit more creative with what I thought would benefit kids. But during COVID, COVID forced us to focus on keeping our kids healthy and safe and our staff. For me, the virtual um, learning environments uh, became very important and helping to engage the students, you know, just really, really important. And being able to, to see the kids, students and talk to them. And one of the other things is that students who might have been quiet in a virtual environment, many of them became much more vocal, you know, because it's like this is just kind of a screen. <laughs> Nobody's here to criticize. Me. So it actually the virtual learning, yes. learning environments were incredibly helpful in getting students engaged in learning and, and is, making Can you guys hear? Yes, we can hear you now. Or your Hello? screen is frozen. Okay, there you go. Okay. All right. Thank you both for, for those answers and that engaging dialogue. Um, I will... Um, Say for myself, uh, a, a heartfelt congratulations to Margot, who is also my sorority sister, um, for her second uh, term in Anchorage School uh, Board on as the board president as well. So she's returning for her second term. So congratulations to you. And I would like to turn that over now over to Jay, who will close us out. 
Again, thank you to our program participants and of course you for joining us this evening. We also want to thank our caucus members and allies for Change Group for their continuous support. If you'd like to join our great organizations or link to the Allies for Change Group within the Alaska Black Caucus, please visit thealaskablackcaucus.com. We would also like to thank the, the municipality of Anchorage. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the, the municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the municipality of Anchorage Anchorage Health Department. Additionally, the views and opinions expressed by participants are their own and do not represent the institutions or organizations they are associated with in professional or personal capacity unless clearly stated. Be sure to join us right here next Sunday for a community conversation BIPOC LGBTQ discrimination. Until next time, good night, everybody. Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. <laughs>